How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to focus, concentrate on the study of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have graciously provided a remarkable salvation for us that is not based in any way on who we are or what we've done, but is based exclusively on who you are and what Christ did on the cross. We thank you that salvation is by non-meritorious faith alone in Christ alone, and that faith is also the basis for our spiritual life, trusting in your word. And as we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, Uh, And we are studying your word and applying it through the means of your word and your Holy Spirit. We are matured and advanced in the spiritual life. Father, we constantly under attack. We're constantly involved in a warfare, an invisible warfare, spiritual warfare that seeks to destroy our spiritual life, seeks to destroy our witness. We pray that we might be steadfast endure in our advance in the spiritual life. And as we continue our study of Abraham, we pray that we might uh, learn the lessons that are evident in his life and that we might apply them in our own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today I got a package in the mail sending me some uh, uh, CDs having to do with a particular uh, project, but... Along with the package, there were six bumper stickers. Now, I brought the extras with me if anybody wants them, but the bumper stickers read, Life is an open book test. Now, think about that. Life is an open book test. Of course, the book's the Bible. And I think it's important, it's timely that that came today in light of our subject in Genesis chapter 12 as we continue our study in Abraham. Now, I want to review some tonight, try to put some things in perspective for us as we look at this whole subject of testing. Testing is one of those subjects, whenever you talk about adversity, prosperity testing, it sort of resonates with each one of us because that's where we live. There's real shoe leather, as old preachers used to say, to teaching on uh, handling adversity and facing tests because hardly... Uh, an hour or two goes by that we're not faced with some sort of uh, test, some sort of challenge, some issue where we have to decide uh, whether we're going to walk by the Spirit or we're going to walk by the flesh. And Abraham is a great example of this. As we look at Abraham, we realize that, that he pictures for us the methodology of advancing in the spiritual life. He faces 12 tests that I've identified in his life. 
Now, I had somebody recently make the comment that, well, Robbie, we can always tell when, when you haven't had quite enough time to study or maybe you're, uh, you're cranking on something you're not ready to, to teach yet and you fall back to teaching on uh, problem-solving devices and the stress busters. Well, there may be a small kernel of truth in that, but the reality is that this is a spiritual life and we constantly need to be reminded of these dynamics. It's so easy for this to go out of our go out of our heads. And I remember many times in the course of my life as a as someone just sitting in the pew that I was so thankful that no matter how many times I might hear it night after night after night, that there were times in my life that when I sat out there in the pew every night all I needed to hear was God is faithful and somehow that's what I got out of the class no matter what else was taught, no matter how precise the or detailed the doctrines were, the one thing that always came through is that God in His grace has given us everything we need to face any and every problem and conflict that we, that we face, no matter what it is. We can handle it on God's resources. His grace is sufficient. His Word is sufficient. And that God is always faithful. And so at some level, we always fall back to this. But tonight, I want to pull this together because this is really a structure for us for understanding uh, Abraham. Uh, as I said when I started off, there are various things the New Testament uses to, to uh, uses the life of Abraham to illustrate. And one of these main things is that, is that walk by means of faith. As Abraham advanced from being a spiritual infant in Genesis 12 to spiritual maturity by the time we get down to Genesis chapter 22. So let's go over this again, and I'm going to add some stuff, and we're going to use some charts to try to pull this together. Some of these charts may be new to some of you. Some of them uh, may be old hat for others of you. All of them, I think, with one exception, are on the website, so you can download those and take a look at them to get the details. A lot of times when I put together these kinds of graphics, it's just a way to try to conceptualize for us what the dynamics are in the spiritual life, because the spiritual life is invisible, it's unseen. And there's so many different things that are said in the Scripture, we need to boil them down into just a few uh, basic mechanics so that we can understand. Once we handle those mechanics, then uh, we can add the details to those. But I think everything can pretty much be boiled down to a few mechanics. So by way of review, first point, I've already, something I've already stated, that Abraham is a picture for us of how the believer advances from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. This is seen in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. More space is given to Abraham in that chapter than any of the other uh, faith heroes. It is by means of faith. And that faith that is talked about there is not simply the active form of faith that is trusting in God, but is uh, there is a passive sense of faith, that which we believe and hold on to. And so faith often speaks of doctrine. We talk, talk sometimes about a person's faith, meaning what uh, religion they are. Uh, what, what is their, what's that person's faith? They're of the Jewish faith or their Islamic faith or whatever it may be. So the Scripture uses faith in that sense, and it does in Hebrews 11, that it is by means of faith, that is, by means of doctrine. 
that they advance. And that is the basis that we have in 2 Peter 3.18, that it is by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that we grow. We grow by means of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we have knowledge, which is doctrine resident in our soul, as we have that doctrine and we utilize it and apply it, then in the dynamics of the Holy Spirit's filling, that doctrine is translated into spiritual growth. But our role is to learn it and apply it. It's the Holy Spirit's role to create uh, spiritual growth or spiritual strength in our life. The dynamic that is at the very core of the Christian life is testing. Don't you just love it? It's testing. Life is an open book test. Point number two, spiritual advance comes through testing. And in Abraham's life, we're going to see 12 tests. And we've already seen two. And as we get into the 13th chapter, we'll see the third test. Now, the first test takes place when God commands Abraham in Genesis 12:1 to leave his country, to leave his father's home, to leave his relatives, and to go to a land that I will show you. Now, trust me, it takes a lot of faith to go where, God, where you know God is taking you. When you don't know where God's taking you, and you're just going to pack your bags and load up the U-Haul and put everything on the back of the U-Haul camel caravan and start trucking somewhere you know not where, then that takes a tremendous amount of trust in the Lord. And at that stage, we see that Abraham has a certain amount of doctrine, a certain amount of trust in the Lord, but his obedience is partial. So he partially passes the first test. He leaves... But he doesn't leave his father, he doesn't leave Lot, he doesn't leave his family, he only goes part way, and so there's a partial obedience. That's true for most of us, especially in spiritual infancy. Then we hit the second test. The second test, we've already studied in some detail, is related to an expansion of the original promise. The original promise is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant includes three elements. Land, seed, and blessing. And at this stage, the emphasis is on the land. It is getting Abraham into the geographical location that God has designed for him. And for Abraham, God has a specifically declared geographical will, as he does for certain people at certain times. Now, especially in light of uh, recent events, moving from Connecticut to Texas, one might think that I wrestled a bit with the issue of geographical will. And you'll often find people who, who have a lot of misconceptions about the concept, concept of geographical will. And as I have studied the concept in Scripture and looked at all of the examples that are given in the Scripture of God having a geographical, specific geographical location where He wants people to be, it's accompanied by direct revelation. There's not a single example of geographical will in the Scripture where God hasn't verbally spoken, objectively revealed that to the individual. I do not think that we have such a thing as the geographical will, in that same sense, operational in the church age. God may indeed want us in a particular place. And as long as we are fulfilling all of the other mandates, we're walking by means of the Spirit, we're learning doctrine, we're applying doctrine, then we can't miss that geographical will. And the point that I'm making here is you don't have to get wrapped around the axle 
like some people do. They just get so tied up in knots. Well, does God want me to go? And this usually happens when you're younger. Most of us, when you get a little older, we've been in the same place for a long time, and, and we're not making those decisions. But when you're younger, you find people saying, well, should I go to school here? Should I go to school there? Should I take the job offer in California or the job offer in, in New York? I mean, what do you want, left coast or left coast? Uh, you just have difficulty making, sometimes making these decisions, and then they get this idea that somehow God has a place for me. It's like, well, I'm going to let God make the decision instead of take responsibility for my own decision. If you are walking by means of the Spirit and applying the Word, if God wants you in location X, and you make a decision to go to location Y, God is not going to let it happen. You'll end up in location X. But God's not in the position of giving special revelation today. Think of all the examples that are used. Jonah's the primary one. But guess what? God told Jonah. Objective revelation. God does not speak like that today. God only speaks through His Word. And I don't find any place in the Scripture where I open it up and it says, Robbie Dean, you need to move to Houston in 2005. You need to, you need to move to Connecticut in 1998. You just don't find that. You look at all the factors... You decide on the basis of where you can best serve the Lord. And if God has opened that door, then you just charge right through it. And if God doesn't want you there, it won't happen. When I was trying to make the decision to come here, as we think back on the history of West Houston Bible Church, and and last year when uh, uh, Doug called me, he said, if we start a church, would you come? I said, well, is this field of doctrine or... What is this? And if you build it, he will come. So, well, I'll consider it. I'll, uh, I'll pray about it and I'll consider it. And actually, I thought, well, this either A, it won't happen, or B, it'll take a couple of years before this happens. And look at what's taken place now in the matter of about eight or nine months, how the Lord made those things happen. So obviously the Lord was opening the door. And as I went through that decision-making process, there were clear objective principles in the Scripture that were much more important than geography. And one of those had to do with specific decreed statements, such as honor your father and your mother. Most of you know my dad has Alzheimer's, and that was something that was weighing heavy on my mind, that I needed to be back here to fulfill my responsibilities because I don't have any any siblings to rely on and and I know Bruce back there was getting tired of every three or four months I'd call him up and I'd say, you know, there's a plumbing problem over there or something else. You know anybody I can call? And, and he was always willing to help out. But I knew there would be a time when I just couldn't rely on somebody else to fulfill my uh, responsibilities. So that was, that's a key factor. So in decision-making, you go with the key objective revelation of God and don't get caught up in trying to uh, make subjective or make decisions based on some sort of subjective impression as to whether God wants you in East Texas or uh, South Louisiana or uh, New York or England or wherever. You go where, God, where you can serve the Lord uh, the best in terms of your spiritual, spiritual gift. A number of other factors which I've covered before. But Abraham has specific revelation here, and it's related to the land. And that's what we have to understand in terms of Abraham's test. And the one thing that is becoming very clear to me the more I study this 
is that these tests that Abraham goes through are all related to that covenant that God gave him. Clear, specific revelation. So when we transfer this into the New Testament, sure, there are different dynamics. He doesn't have the indwelling or the filling of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. There's some other dynamics that are different, many of which are the same. One thing that, that we see is that he operates under covenantal promises just as we do. And we get into the New Testament, we have a new covenant. That's what New Testament refers to. And we get into the new, new Covenant, and you analyze the New Covenant, and one of the features of the New Covenant is that the Holy Spirit is going to be inside of us. The Holy Spirit's going to indwell us. And so we can say that in the church age, one arena of testing that we're going to face has to do with the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what we would expect in light of passages such as Galatians 5.16, that we're to walk by means of the Spirit and not by means of the flesh. See, testing always relates to those foundational mandates. Be filled by means of the Spirit uh, in Ephesians 5.18. So these are, this is one arena where we can expect to be tested on a daily basis. Are we going to walk by means of the Spirit? And, of course, that's not this sort of mystical uh, meditate-on-your-navel kind of uh, inner light uh, orientation to the Holy Spirit that you find in, in soft mysticism. This has been a problem that's plagued Christianity since the early centuries. Uh, too many of the early church fathers were influenced by Neoplatonism and the mysticism that was latent in that, in that Greek culture. And that bled over into the Middle Ages. And then you have uh, certain other movements in the post-Reformation period, the Pietists, and uh, other groups, you had certain Baptist groups that were uh, very big on the inner light uh, movement of the Holy Spirit. You, the, the spinoffs of that were like the Quakers and the, and the Shakers and other groups such as that that held to this inner light. And all of this goes to a fundamental flaw in understanding Revelation. And they all thought that somehow God is going to speak to me. But God only speaks to us today through His Word. That's it. He's not speaking to you through your feelings. He's not speaking to you through some kind of uh, inner light. You know, with with uh, not not being <coughs> in, in ungracious to our hosts here. I was walking through one of the children's Sunday school classes a minute ago uh, before prayer meeting, and there was a chorus up there, and it starts off. Uh, something about how to feel Jesus in your life. And, you know, this is just the exact kind of thing that you don't want to be singing about. You don't feel Jesus today. Emotion isn't a criterion for the spiritual life. So anyway, Abraham has a specific command related to, to the land, and then he's tested on that. We have specific mandates in the New Testament that we're tested on. Galatia, I mean, uh, Genesis 15:7 says, "To your descendants I will give this land." And now there's a test. He's supposed to go to the land. There's a test. The test is famine. The test is, are you going to trust God in the midst of famine? He's made promises related to seed, related to blessing. Uh, this means that you're not going to die even when there's no food. Are you going to trust trust God? And he he fails that test. And notice the third test, just a preview of coming attractions. Look down to chapter 13. When we, as we get into chapter 13, Abraham returns to the land. There's grace recovery at the beginning of chapter 13. 
And after he returns to the land and he's back in fellowship, he hits the third test. And notice the beginning of verse 6, Genesis 13, 6. Now the land was not able to support them. Now, of course, the them is Lot and Abraham. Once again, the test relates to what? The test relates to the land. The test relates to the covenantal promises that God gave Abraham. And the same way in our life, the tests that we run into face the promises that, and, the, and the provisions that God has given us in relationship to uh, being in the church age under the uh, new covenant. Third point is that we recognized last week is that Abraham is faced with adversity testing in relation to the land. So we summarized adversity testing. Adversity can be expected or can be unexpected. Often it surprises us. It comes in different shapes and sizes. And a key verse for understanding the importance of testing is James 1-2. My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. So we're going to encounter, and the word there for various is poikilos, where we get our word polka dot. And it indicates a wide variety some are small, some are big, some are one color, some are another color. And I put together a flow chart here years ago, and we've seen this before. We, after salvation, we enter into the spiritual life. The second most important decision, which is really an ongoing decision, that we make after salvation is what we do with that salvation. And we're going to grow by means of these tests. And that's what James 1 uh, three talks about that these are tests of faith, and actually the word faith there has the same nuance that it has in Hebrews 11. It's what you believe, that which is believed. And so as you go through life, there's going to be tests. So James says, we can count it all joy because you know. It's a causal adverbial participle there. Because you know something, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So it's the testing of doctrine. As soon as you learn something, God's going to test you. As soon as Abraham learns something, as soon as he's given a promise or a mandate, God tests him. So we looked last time at the negatives that uh, take place. So we'll look first at negative volition. Negative volition, we have an option. We can operate on dependence on the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, which is the active imperative in Galatians 5.18. Recently, I've been going back over my uh, spiritual life doctrines because I'm leaving here, as you know, on tomorrow. And next week and the next week, I will be teaching at the uh, seminary Bible college that Jim Myers has in Kiev on a spiritual life. I'll be teaching that to to his, his uh, students. And the more... I, I look at this, the more I realize that the most important command is probably, or the more important command is probably Galatians 5.18. Walk by means of the Spirit, as opposed to be filled with the Spirit. That's one we've heard all our lives. Be filled by means of the Spirit. It's been drilled into all of us. How important it is to be filled by means of the Spirit. Now, I'm not negating that. I'm not diminishing that in any way. And the two concepts and the two passages 
in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 are parallel in numerous ways that I don't have time to go into. But as I have evaluated the two mandates in the last few weeks, one of the things that has struck me is the mandate that we have in Ephesians 5.18 is a passive imperative. Passive imperative means that while it's addressed to our volition, that's the imperative mood, that's addressed to your volition, what happens in the process of being filled is purely passive. We are receptive to something. The Holy Spirit is filling us with something. And so in essence, we are putting ourselves in a position to be filled. It's a passive concept. The active concept that is on the other side of that is in Galatians 5:16 which is to be to to walk by means of the spirit it's an era, i mean it's a um, it's a present active imperative the active voice means that we're doing something so it's a moment by moment now these are just like uh, opposite sides of the same coin but it's that active voice that gives priority to the Galatians 5:16 command because that is something that engages your active obedience on a moment-by-moment basis as opposed to a passive obedience, which is what you have in Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5.18. Now, last time we saw that what happens more often than we want to admit is that when we hit that test, we are, our immediate response, because that's the inclination of our sin nature, is to go negative. And so we respond from the sin nature, and at the very core of the sin nature, you have various emotions. And the core emotion is fear, out of, Gal- out of Genesis chapter 3, that the initial response of Adam and the woman when God walked in the garden was fear. Fear is what motivated them. Now, what goes with that fear was their arrogance. And the two teamed up together, and that led to uh, their, their attempt to solve their problem apart from God in terms of human good. So we may in, try to solve the problem through sin. There's a lot of different ways in which you can solve a problem through sin. You can solve a problem if it comes to some sort of test by cheating. You can lie. You can get engaged in overt sins, as Abraham does. Abraham ends up in a deceitful operation to uh, disguise the fact that Sarah is his wife. And so he's going to deceive Pharaoh and deceive the, the court in Egypt, and he's going to convince them that, that he's, uh, he's single and she's just his sister. Then you have human good, and in human good, this is what you have in the Garden of Eden. There's nothing sinful in creating garments out of fig leaves. What's sinful is you're attempting to solve the problem apart from dependence upon God. And that always creates more problems down the road. And that's what we'll see with with Abraham here. Once he starts trying to solve this problem of the famine on his own, it generates more problems, and he generates problems that are with us to this very day. So you have sin, human good, and this always leads to uh, temporal death. Proverbs 16.25 says that there is a way which seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. No matter how good it may seem to go down to Egypt, no matter how attractive it may be, and no matter what blessings may come your way, when you are operating on human viewpoint and the sin nature, whether it's 
personal sin or human good, it's going to end up in temporal death. And it is going to destroy your spiritual life, which leads to, which is weakness and instability. I developed this chart out of a study of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 12 and James 1 many years ago. This leads eventually, if you stay under sin nature control, it leads to spiritual regression and what the Bible calls a hardened heart. It becomes more and more, you become callous to the Word. You become more and more uh, resistant to the Holy Spirit. And there needs to be a way of recovery. And that recovery comes in the New Testament through confessing sin. In the Old Testament, that was usually associated with a sacrifice. Now, if you've been operating under sin nature control, then the next issue is going to be confession so that you can start operating on the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit. And that's through 1 John 1.9. And we see this in the first three verses of chapter 13. After Abraham goes down to Egypt, he goes through this whole scenario down there. Now, one thing I want you to note, I pointed it out last time, but I want to drive it home. We live in such a material culture that I would bet, push come to shove, that most of us, when we think about blessing, we couch it in physical, material terms, in financial terms, in terms of possessions. We don't couch it in terms of spiritual uh, spiritual terms. We, we, we would hardly think about, possess, about blessing in terms of uh, uh, poverty, in terms of living without possessions. Abraham never owned land other than his gravesite. He never owned the land during his lifetime. He had a lot of possessions. And notice how he gained possessions while he's in Egypt. He is on Operation Human Good. He is lying. He's in deceit. He's operating on the sin nature. He is in rank carnality trying to deceive the whole operation down in, down in, um, down in Egypt. And what happens? He's treated well. See, sometimes it appears that carnality pays off. Sometimes it appears that those who are in arrogance, those who are trying to solve their problems on their own, are are doing well. They're making money. They're getting job promotions. They're getting recognition. They're getting the plum assignments. Everything is going well in their life. Abraham's completely out of fellowship here, and Pharaoh's treating him well. Pharaoh, the object of his deceit, treats Abraham well in verse 16 uh, for, for Sarah's sake. He had, this is like a dowry. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female donkeys, uh, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And then when we get down to chapter 13, we discover that when Abraham goes back to the land, the, the text says he was very rich, exceedingly rich and wealthy in livestock, in silver and in gold. He increased his wealth while he's in carnality. Now, somehow that doesn't fit the normal superficial approach that most Christians take to the Christian life. See, see, this is the whole problem with the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity theology that is so prominent on the airwaves. You watch TBN or any of the other religious channels, or if you go to some of the larger churches that you have in, in this city and many other cities, the pastors are caught up in what's called the health and wealth gospel. 
And that is that God wants you to be prosperous. Jesus Christ died so you could be prosperous. And if you're not wealthy, then you're not obeying God's Word. And, of course, it all starts with, with tithing. And you just have to learn how to tithe. You have to give. Uh, if you give 10%, the Lord will return it a hundredfold. So if you give $50,000, then the Lord will return 500000 Now, you're appalled by that, and you should be. But I have run into people who have literally uh, taken everything out of their bank account and given it to some huckster in the hopes that God would give them a tenfold return on their money. And this is proclaimed from many different pulpits, and there have been a few national scandals as a result of that kind of teaching, but it hasn't gone away. But here is a, a passage that demonstrates the problem with all of that. Here's Abraham. He's carnal. He's out of fellowship. He's not trusting God. He's lying to Pharaoh. And what happens? He's healthy and wealthy. But it has nothing to do with God's blessing. It's just the blessing from the cosmic system. And sometimes you have Christians who know how to work the cosmic system, and in their, car- in their carnality, they're going to have tremendous wealth. And the warning to us is, if things are going well... You're advancing in prosperity. That's not necessarily because God is the one blessing you. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless you uh, physically, materially, financially. But don't think that that's a barometer of your spiritual advance. So Abraham is, things are going well, but he does encounter difficulty and The difficulty comes because Pharaoh is the one who gets some adversity testing in verse 17 of chapter 12. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh. Now, here's a great example. We're going to go through this in just a minute of of how we analyze our suffering. And here's an example of an individual who's going through suffering by association. The person he's associated with is getting blessing, so to speak. He's He's getting prosperous, let's say. But Pharaoh, because he's associated with a carnal Christian, is the one who is coming under uh, divine discipline. And the reason is, is because of God's covenant. It's because God is going to do what it takes to keep Pharaoh from going in and taking Sarah as his wife. He's got to protect the seed. He's got to protect the womb of Sarah so that he can fulfill his promise in the seed. So we get up here in the top cycle, and we have walking by the Spirit. When we walk by the Spirit, we're going to make decisions based on the leading of the Holy Spirit, based on the Word of God in our soul. And so this is going to produce divine good. It's going to be divine viewpoint leading to good decisions. We make wise decisions as a result of having that reservoir of doctrine in your soul. And that uh, that leads to capacity for life, and it produces a life that is an evidence of the grace of God. That's Romans 12, too. That our life demonstrates that God's will is good and perfect. It becomes a testimony both to uh, human beings as well as to angels. It increases our endurance. This is the thrust, again, of James 1, uh, verse 3 and 4. Because you know that the testing of your faith, that is the doctrine in your soul, produces 
endurance. It's not patience, which is what you have in some translations. It's endurance. This is a word you have to learn. Hupomone. We're going to hear it again and again when we get into Revelation 2 in that first letter to the Ephesians. They are praised for their endurance. Endurance means hanging in there in learning doctrine and applying doctrine no matter how rough it gets, no matter what happens. You always tend to run into some Christians that have gone through some testing, and usually it involves other Christians. I'll tell you, nothing is worse than getting stabbed in the back by some other believer. And it happens to all of us at some point in time. It may be a family member. It may be a close friend. But there's nothing like it. It just warms your heart to the whole Christian experience. But what usually happens when you see Christians hit that particular test is it's a real tendency to want to go away from the whole Christian experience. I'm just going to uh, you know, get away from all those hypocrites. And uh, it's a real opportunity to tube it in the, uh, in the spiritual life just because you see failure in other believers. Well, other believers are always going to fail because they're, they're fallen creatures just like we are. So we have to be prepared for the fact that that may happen to us and not give in to that tendency from the sin nature to just want to bail out. That's why endurance is emphasized again and again and again. Endurance doesn't take place when it's easy to go to Bible class and when it's easy to apply doctrine. Endurance takes place when it's hard to go to Bible class, when it's hard to face those people, when it's hard to apply doctrine, when we're in those situations where we think somehow God just, He's too busy. He's worried about that, the terrorists over in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq and the tsunami down in the Indian Ocean, and somehow He's forgotten about what's going on in my life. And so we begin to think that maybe doctrine really doesn't work, and maybe this is just a sham. And God is giving us an opportunity to endure, to stay under and in that adversity and apply doctrine. And that's when spiritual growth takes place. That's what James says. Let endurance have its maturing effect, literally, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So how do you grow? How does a Christian grow? It's through testing. It's through testing. Life is an open book test. You have to know doctrine in order to pass those tests. So testing is the means to spiritual advance. We have negative testing, and we have negative testing in adversity, and we have positive testing in prosperity. Now, eventually, there's evaluation, and I don't want to get into that on that chart tonight, but let's look at breakdown adversity and prosperity testing. Two forms of testing that you encounter, direct testing and indirect testing. Now, what do I mean by these two concepts? Well, first of all, by direct testing, I mean that this testing is somehow directly related to decisions that you and I make. This testing is, a, is directly related to the decisions that we make in life. Indirect testing are situations that come up that are that's indirectly related. It's not you can't tie it to any decision that you make. For example, Pharaoh, although he's not a believer, certainly going through some adversity, 
but it's not related to any decision he's made. It's related to a decision that someone else has made. Okay, let's talk about direct testing first of all. First of all, it's the result of sinful choices and actions. We get out of fellowship by making a sinful choice. You can't get out of fellowship through human good. First decision you make to get out of fellowship is always a sin. It's a result of sinful choices and actions. And this is the simple principle of volitional responsibility that whatsoever a man sows, this he will also reap. So we hit certain negative consequences. Now, if we, if the Lord really allowed us to go through all the negative consequences from all the sin that we commit, most of us probably be dead by now. That's just the grace of God. He doesn't really repay for every single one of those decisions. And the second problem is foolish choices. This is what happens once we're out of fellowship. We're not going to operate on divine viewpoint. We're going to operate on human viewpoint. We're going to produce human good. This is uh, the contrast that you see in Proverbs, Lord willing. I'm going to hit Proverbs within the next five years. In Proverbs, you have the contrast between wisdom and foolishness. Wisdom is the result of that accumulation of doctrine in your soul. And the believer that advances and grows and learns doctrine makes wise decisions because he has a, has a reservoir of, of truth in his soul. Whereas the carnal believer and the unbeliever has a reservoir of human viewpoint in his soul, and so what comes out of that are foolish choices. And those foolish choices eventually come back to, to hurt us. So you can classify this as, as a self-induced misery, but it's the Lord gives us suffering for discipline for the believer. It's directly related to our own decisions. On the other hand, we have indirect testing. It's not directly related to a volitional choice on our part. And indirect testing, we face adversity because we live in the cosmic system. We live in Satan's world. And because we live in Satan's world, we're going to experience all of the flaws and problems that are the consequence of Adam's original sin. We're going to face health problems. We're going to face meteorological disasters, geophysical disasters, financial problems. We're going to face problems in warfare, problems of, of a poverty, uh, all kinds of problems. We're going to get old. We're going to get fat. We're going to uh, see our hair uh, turn gray and fall out. And all kinds of things happen simply because we live in Satan's system. And it's a fallen world. And so we're going to have to deal with those things uh, eventually. Then a uh, second category of indirect testing has to do with suffering by association. We live with fallen creatures. I don't want you to look at your spouse right now, but your spouse is a sinner. I know you may not think so, but your spouse is a fallen creature and they're going to make a lot of screwy decisions in life. And uh, if their sin nature really gets the best of them, they're going to really test the doctrine that's in your soul. And because they may make foolish decisions, they may make sinful choices, you're going to have to suffer the consequences along with them. You may be involved in a corporation, Enron, for example, where the management makes sinful choices or foolish choices. And so you suffer the consequences of others' decision. You may live in a nation, for example, uh, Soviet Union or China, or uh, you may be a Christian in a primarily Muslim country, 
and the leadership is going to make many decisions that are out of carnality or foolish choices, and you're going to suffer the consequences. It's indirect testing, and if you're in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, applying doctrine, then it becomes suffering for blessing. All suffering for discipline can be converted into suffering for blessing by using 1 John 1.9, confessing your sins, getting back in fellowship, walking by the Spirit. Now, that's just adversity testing. But the thing we never talk about is prosperity testing. And that's the second aspect. I remember some years ago uh, getting a phone call from a very good friend of mine. We've been friends for uh, many years now. And I didn't know for many years. I had no idea what he did in business. I didn't have a clue what his financial status was. Uh, I I originally met him because uh, he had some questions about spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict. And he had asked a friend of mine about it, and and he was told, well, the person you need to talk to is Robbie Dean. So give him a call. And for probably the first seven or eight years of our relationship was just a phone call. And he would call, and we would talk about doctrine for an hour, hour and a half, uh, about once a month. And uh, as the years went by, and then I went to Connecticut, and uh, somewhere along the line we actually met. And what I learned eventually was that he was an extremely successful, or during that period of time, he became an extremely successful businessman, and uh, where his business made uh, several million dollars a year, and he became quite wealthy. And he told me one time when I was teaching on this subject, when I was going through James back when I first went to Connecticut, he called me up and he said, what you need to tell people is that when you're going through adversity testing, you think how great it would be for God to give you prosperity testing. Let me tell you, prosperity testing is ten times worse than adversity testing. Because when he said, all those years when I couldn't rub two nickels together and I was poor, hardly a day went by that I didn't listen to two or three tapes. I was... I was in the Word every single day. I was claiming promises. I knew I had to be on my knees, and that every waking moment I had to be walking by the Holy Spirit. And it was just the grace of God that got me through from one day to the next. But I'm so busy now. There's so many things that are going on, so many positive things, so many uh, good things that are happening because of my business, and it's expanded so much that I don't have time to listen to a half a tape a day. Many times I just forget it. Everything's going well. I don't. I convince myself I don't need to listen to doctrine right now. And see, this is where people fail, is in prosperity testing. We just think that we want to have that that prosperity uh, blessing. Now, in prosperity testing, this also has direct and indirect uh, categories. The direct testing is a result of. We can trace it back to specific decisions we make. Wise choices based on divine viewpoint and functioning in the realm of divine good. This is based on application of doctrine. We utilize wise principles of handling money that you discover in the Scripture. It's interesting that you go through the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you'll discover the Bible says a lot about economics says a lot about how to handle money, how the believer should handle his money. And if you are applying those principles, then you may see a certain amount of prosperity come your way. On the other side, you have in indirect testing. You may have uh, prosperity that comes your way simply because of common grace. 
common grace, you happen to have been born in a country that is going through a period of affluence. It's going through a period of prosperity, much like this nation has experienced in the last 50 years. And even if you don't have a whole lot in this country compared to 99.9% of the people in the world today and in history, uh, even rather poor people, uh, relatively speaking, in this nation are blessed with incredible physical, material, health, uh, academic, intellectual blessings. That's common grace, logistical grace. God gives us many things to survive, many things that we have, and it has nothing to do with the decisions we make. It has everything to do with God's decision, where He wants us in life, the, the ministry that He wants us to have, the impact He wants us to have. God may bless some people and simply because He wants them to have an evangelistic ministry on Fifth Avenue in New York. And so they have to have the... Uh, the background, the finances, the standing, the social status, in order to have that kind of a ministry. Others, he may not give that to them because he wants them in some other kind of ministry. So just because you happen to have a lot doesn't mean that that's uh, just because that's due to your decisions. It's the grace of God putting you in a position to use that in the ministry that God has designed for your particular life within the body of Christ. Then we have blessing by association. We're married to somebody who has good business sense, or you went to work for a company and, and uh, the leadership in that country, company is making good decisions, and consequently you are blessed by that, or you're just living in a nation uh, going through a period of blessing. So this testing can be indirect or direct, and as we go through prosperity testing, it's another opportunity for spiritual advance. The key issue, going back to that previous chart, is every time we have a decision to make that involves application of doctrine or not, it's a test. It may not be a big test. You know, we tend to think of tests as something major. But test any decision. It, it may involve, am I going to get irritated and yell at somebody right now or, or just relax and trust the Lord and utilize a little grace orientation and relax mental attitude? Ninety percent of the tests that most of us flunk are those little ones that seem to be a bit inconsequential. Now, when we look at Abraham here, we see that Abraham has devised a strategy, like we all do, in order to make life work apart from God. That's the subtlety of the sin nature. The strategy is the strategy is always directed toward a goal, and the unstated goal of your sin nature is to make life work apart from God. Whether you want to admit it or not, that is the drive of every one of our sin natures, is that somehow we're going to make it work. We don't really need God. Every now and then, maybe in a pinch, but, but if I can do it without God, then so much the better. And that's exactly what Abraham has done. He's motivated by fear, fear of death, fear of, of uh, suffering through hunger, uh, fear for those around him perhaps, but... Uh, he, so he devised a strategy, and that strategy involves deceit, and it involves uh, lying. And, of course, he brings in a few accomplices. He gets his wife to come along with him, and he has to, uh, he, he's going to get some consequences from it. Now, one thing that I want you to note, as I have pointed out already, Abraham has quite a bit of prosperity while he's out of fellowship. 
But when you have prosperity that's the consequence of being out of fellowship, what's going to happen inevitably is that part of that prosperity is going to come back and kick you in the rear, to put it mildly. See, what we see here is that Abraham increases in his physical possession, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, and male and female servants. And one of those female servants is Hagar. And when he goes back to the land, he's got Hagar with him, and that's one of the consequences of his being out. If he had never gone to Egypt, he'd never picked up Hagar. If he didn't have Hagar, we wouldn't have had the whole problem with Ishmael. If we didn't have Ishmael, we wouldn't have a lot of the Arab-Israeli conflict today. You see, all that's a consequence of Abraham heading south and trying to solve his problem through what appeared to be a good solution but was the uh, production of his own carnality. But Abraham utilizes grace recovery. Now, I'm running out of time here, but I want to end by, by communicating something. Just look at this graphically. Some of you have seen this before. I developed this out of 1 John, that we have these building blocks of our spiritual life. And we relate them to the problem-solving devices or the stress busters. And they, in essence, become the, the means by which God strengthens our soul and builds spiritual Christ-like character in our soul so that we can then... Uh, further handle uh, greater and greater tests. In spiritual childhood, there are five of these problem-solving devices that are foundational. Confession, 1 John 1.9, filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, Galatians 5.16, faith rest drill. Now, this is where, where Abraham is being tested in faith, the faith rest drill, and he fails. Also in grace orientation, because he's failing to trust that God and His grace is going to take care of him in the midst of the famine. So you see, at this fundamental level, we have to apply these problem-solving devices. This is where I want us to focus as we go through Abraham. We're going to see how these are lived out in a person's life. It's one thing to put a chart like this up on the overhead. This is sort of a logical relationship of these. But life doesn't flow in nice, neat, logical patterns. It's rather messy. It's dynamic. We learn in lots of different ways. But this, this gives us a conceptual way of organizing it. In spiritual adolescence... We develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny. Then in spiritual adulthood, we, we build on grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. We develop a real love for God. That doesn't mean that you don't have a love for God when you're in spiritual infancy, but it, it's mature. Just like your little two-year-old has a love for you as a parent that is not what it will be when they're 25 or 30, but nevertheless, it's still it's the love of a child. It's still an accurate love. There's a, we develop impersonal love for all mankind and occupation with Christ, and this is what I call the love triplex. It, it, they relate to one another, and it culminates in, our, in, in a genuine peace and stability that we're going to see in Abraham by the time we get to Genesis 22. Now, that's the logical relationship. Let's face it, we don't all grow that way. So I, and in the Old Testament, of course, I, I did this because Abraham didn't have the filling of the Spirit or occupation with Christ. 
All, he's, all he has is a faith rest drill. But what happens in our life is we come into it sort of like this. You come into Bible class and you may be teaching on uh, occupation with Christ. So you learn, begin to learn there before you learn something else. And it's rather messy. You know, we build some kind of foundation, and then as time goes by, we learn a little of that doctrine, a little, little of this doctrine, and we build this whole spiritual uh, soul fortress one brick at a time, but not in a logical order. It's dynamic. You know, I remember years ago sitting in the pew and people would say, well, you know, I must be at stage one or stage two. I'm just mastering the third problem-solving device. Uh, maybe one of these days I'll get to the fifth one, thinking that you went through this thing in a logical progression. It's dynamic. It's reality. One day we're learning a little bit about occupation with Christ, and we get tested there. The next day we're learning some things about uh, uh, sharing the happiness of God, and we apply that. The next day we're learning some things about confession, and we apply that. So there's a dynamic to it. Well, Abraham learns to that he recovers through confession. And we see this in the first three verses, which is where we'll pick up next time. Uh, those first three verses, he confesses. And we see this when he goes back to, to Bethel and Ai, where he had erected an altar to the Lord before. And there we're told in 13.4, And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. That's his return back to reliance upon God. And what happens as soon as he gets back in fellowship? Boom, there's another land test. Verse 6, now the land was not able to support him. So we're going to get into the next test, and, and this test is really going to focus on grace orientation on Abraham's part. He's going to, to, that's how he's going to pass the next test. So he failed one, and he's going to pass one. And we'll pick up there when I get back from Kiev with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for our study this evening. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for its objectivity, for the way the Holy Spirit takes these things and drives them home in our own soul. We pray that we would have the courage to uh, take up this challenge and apply these things in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.